Good morning, everyone. Good morning to everyone who's joining us online here in St. John's, across the province, across Canada, and indeed across the world. And I might say, happy Valentine's Day. But if I can be honest, this day, along with the entire week, has been, it's been kind of weird. It, it, and for me, it kind of feels like I'm reliving this Groundhog Day over and over again. You see, when we kicked off last year with our online streaming, I kicked off the online streaming by preaching at a, by starting in James, and here I am again in front of an empty church, talking to a camera, preaching again. And so, if you have your Bibles with you, or your phone, or your tablet, or, or whatever, uh, let's open up to James chapter 2. I'm going to look at verses 14 to 26. Again, that's James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and well fed. Without giving them the things that the body needs, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, the faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now I just want to start off with a bit of a disclaimer. This text, it's challenging, it's uncomfortable, and it has caused me uh, to be uneasy for the better part of the week. And it's, it's challenging because James effectively draws a line in the sand and he says that there are people who will claim to have a saving faith, but when in fact they actually don't. And as we'll see as we look through and work our way through the text, you can actually tell when a person's words don't match their actions. And so I just want to start off by giving you an analogy of, of this before we actually look into the text. So my wife and I, we just celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. And 10 years ago, my wife and I, we stood before God and, and we said, I do. I made a covenant vow to my wife to love her, to protect her, to be faithful to her, to support her, cherish her, pray for her, encourage her, etc., etc. But imagine this. Imagine if after the ceremony, I looked at my wife and said, honey, 
you go up to the hotel room, get a nice long shower, take a load off, and I'll meet you in a couple of hours. And then I go down to the hotel bar, and I have a few drinks, and I'm schmoozing, and I try to pick up a few uh, numbers from a bunch of the ladies in the bar. And then I tell her, after that, after all that's said and done, I'll be up, because honestly, this is going to be the best day of our lives. Like, do you see what I'm getting at? What I said just hours before doesn't translate into what I'm actually doing. My actions are not evidence of the vows I had just made. Essentially, not only did I pay lip service to my wife, but I paid lip service to God. And at the end of the day, I may have a fantastic Facebook update, and there might have been a change in my status, but in no way was there a change in my heart and who I was. But let's bring this back to James, right? Because a saving faith is truly more than just a social media update. It's a fundamental change in who you are and what you do. Cool. Now, a few weeks ago, Steve Bray preached on John 12, and he left us with this tantalizing question. I hope you guys remember, but if not, I'm going to tell you. He said, will you put your faith in Christ? And last week, Adam preached out of uh, Jonah, and he, uh, he reminded us that God can and does redeem those who put their faith in Christ. But today I want to take it one step further, and I want to answer the question, what does a saving faith in Christ actually look like? In other words, what's the evidence? What's the outpouring? What's the manifestation of a saving faith? And so I've got three points that we're going to work through today. Point one, Faith without works is dead. Number two, faith with works is alive. And point three, your works justify your faith. So again, if there's anything I want all of you to take away from today, it's this. I want you to have a better understanding of what saving faith looks like. Because here's the reality. In every sense of the word, what you do is evidence of what you say. Now, I just mentioned a few moments ago that this text is challenging and it's uncomfortable. In fact, as I was preparing this week, some commentators had said that this might be one of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. It's caused a lot of people to simply avoid it altogether. And here's why. Two words. Works and justification. Now, I'm going to tackle works right now, and then I'm going to just wait a bit to, towards the end of the sermon before we get into the word justification. And so when you read through James, particularly this part of the text, works is a big deal for James. But the Apostle Paul also spends some time in other areas of the New Testament talking about works. So basically, you have two different guys using the same word, but differently. Like I said, there's a number of spots in the New Testament, and, and Paul talks about works, and whenever he does, like, for example, in, in Ephesians 2, he's saying this, you're never going to be able to do anything by your own merit or strength or will to come to a saving faith. There's nothing you can do to save yourselves. That's only something that's given from Christ. For example, you could say, hey, I'm a great philanthropist and, and donate a stack of money to charity. That's not enough. 
You could pick up garbage in, in Daring Park or in any park and then be like, hey, that's good enough, right, Lord? Well, no. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because this is not what James is talking about. You see, when James uses the word works, he's talking about the things that you do in response to a saving faith from a great and holy God. Same word, two different uses. Kind of like public works and a pizza with the works. Right? Same deal. They don't mean the same thing. But I like how a guy named Francis Gensch puts it. He put it into perspective for me, and I hope it, it puts it into perspective for you. Francis Gensch says this. When Paul talks about works, he's dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. But James, when he talks about works, he's dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and, well, ages. So again, when James talks about works, he's talking about the things you do in response to your salvation. That's it, all right? If we can get that, then the whole text is going to be a bit easier going forward. And so here's my first point, as I just mentioned earlier. Faith without works is dead. Take a look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that type of faith save him? You see, the claim in verse 14 is that you can have a saving faith without works. And I want you to think about that wedding analogy that I gave a few moments ago. You can say and believe in the words, I do all you want, but if there's no action or works, then really all you're doing is assenting uh, to be an intellectual assassin. That's it. And, and this is why the text is confronting, because God is telling us, you can know whether someone is saved or not by looking at their faith and what they do. And trust me, not all types of faith are a saving faith. Not everyone passes the test. You can claim to be a Christian with a saving faith, but that doesn't mean you are a Christian with saving faith. It's very possible to make an intellectual claim, but be completely dead in your faith. It's very possible to grow up in the church, to have Christian parents, to do all the Bible studies, to participate in all the ministries, to be told to do everything that everyone asks you, but still have a dead faith. It's very possible as well to, to live a life of religious rituals and traditions and ticking boxes every day that you live, but honestly, you can still have a dead faith. Think of it this way. You can say that gravity exists, and you can say that you can fly, or I'm sorry, you can say that gravity doesn't exist, and you can say that you can fly, but then you can quickly go jump up a tree and jump out of it, and we'll see how quickly you can't fly. So you, just because you make the claim that gravity doesn't exist doesn't mean that it's true, right? Trust me, I've tried when I was younger, and it hurts. <laughs> but this is the argument the antagonist is making in this uh, part of James. He's saying, I have mere belief that I am saved. He has become an intellectual assassin, and, and he truly believes that his saving faith, or his faith without works, is enough to save him. His faith doesn't need works. But let me be clear on this. A faith that's all in your head, without deed or action, 
Guys, it cannot save you. The point of the passage, as David Platt reminds us, I'm just going to read a quote here, is that this person that James is talking to in verse 14, he doesn't really have faith. He claims to have it, but he doesn't. His so-called faith is dead and worthless. It's, it, it does not save, quite literally. It doesn't work. This is important because James is not contrasting someone who has an immature faith with someone who has a mature faith or someone who has a nominal faith with someone who has an authentic faith. No, he's telling us you either have faith that saves or you don't. There's no in-between. And this is why James asks the question at the end of verse 14, can such a faith save him? Because a faith that's grounded in mere intellectualism Man, it's just, it's just an empty confession. It's just lip service. It's lip service to the glories of Christ. It's lip service to what he did. It's a lip service to his death on the cross. It's just pure, empty confession. Now, fantastic way to start off a sermon, Matt. What about Valentine's Day? Yes, today is Valentine's Day, so let me give you another analogy. You can say to your wife, I love you. And you can say to your wife, honey, I love you. There is a difference. One is empty and the other is legit. With one, you pay lip service to your wife. And with the other, hopefully, it's followed by actions and affection and acts of service and quality and love. One is empty, one is full. This is the same deal with what James is talking about here in 14 to 26. And the saving faith that he is talking about is evidenced through the works and deeds and acts of service. But this is challenging. Like I said, I I have spent more time than I, I care to admit this week wrestling with this text because it's challenging. But if anything, we need to hear this and we need to be asking ourselves this question every day. Do I see the evidence of a saving faith? Do I see it in what I say and what I do, how I act, how I treat others? And I would encourage you today to be asking those questions. Ask it every single day. And then bring it to the Lord. Here's my second point. Faith without works, sorry, faith with works. I've got to be clear on that one. Faith with works is alive. Verse 15 If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Remember the claim back in 14, verse 14, that it is possible to have a saving faith apart from works. But James flat out rejects that. In no way, shape, or form can a saving faith stay here. It can't. If you truly have found saving faith in Christ alone and have been washed by the gospel, then your faith will produce works naturally. You will be filled with compassion towards the poor. You will walk alongside your brother and sister through sin and pain. You will see others through the gospel and realize they are in as much need of Christ as you are every single day. 
And this is the challenge that James and many other of the gospel writers wants us to wrestle with daily. Take what Paul says in Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out with fear and trembling. We are to be actively reviewing our faith. We need to be asking, are we producing good works? Are we producing the fruits of the Spirit? Are we growing with the fruits of the Spirit? Are the fruits of the Spirit evident in our lives? Are they increasing or are they just not there? Or are we just stuck inside our own minds? You see, a saving faith is not a static faith. It's a dynamic faith that produces. But truth be told, if I can be honest, verse 16 is an absolute kick in the guts. When you start to look at it, man, it is, it's not fun, but it's good. We need to be paying attention to this because I fear for many of us, we will fall into the trap of what James is getting at in verse 16. I'm going to read it. He says, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed. But if you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? This right here is hypocrisy at its finest. James uses an example of someone who has the ability to demonstrate a saving faith by meeting the needs of a fellow brother or sister, but instead, instead they hide behind religious jargon and fancy theological phrases. Wow. For example, imagine if someone came to me, all right? Imagine if someone came to me, a brother or sister in the faith, and they said, hey, Matt, you know what? You know I've lost my job. My SERB payments are ending. I can barely make ends meet. Our cupboards are bare. And I can't can't even afford to buy my son a winter jacket. I mean, it's freezing outside and he's wearing a windbreaker. Anyway, listen, you don't need to hear my problems. I know you're busy. You're planting Kilbride Community Church. You're trying to, you know, figure out life with your family. But man, this is hard for me to ask. Please don't judge me. Can you, can, you, can you spare me a loaf of bread just to get me by, just to feed my family? And I respond, dude, that's rough. Man, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, that's bad luck. COVID's affected us all. But listen, man, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to go back inside in a few minutes. My family and I, we're going to sit down and pray for you. We both know that God is sovereign. Oh, he is. And, and that he takes care of his children. I mean, there's... Isn't there that thing in in Matthew 6 about him taking care of the birds? But honestly, guys, let's not get lost in this. How much more valuable are you than than the birds? So don't stress. Man, God is so good. He's got this, and I believe he'll take care of you. And then you close the door, and you go and have a big old scoff of wings, chips, dressing, and gravy. I mean, that's what's going on here. You're right back to verse 14. You know what to do? You know what you should do. You know what the Bible says to do. And you don't. And here's the crazy thing. If I want to go one step further, we all get excited about Hebrews 13 too. Don't neglect to show hospitality for by doing so, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. That we fail to forget what Jesus said. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. 
Then they too will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in person or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. I hope you understand why this has been weighing heavy on me this week. This is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. It it makes me uncomfortable because as I work out my salvation in fear and trembling before the Lord, I need to reconcile these things in my heart. Like I got to be asking myself, is this what my salvation looks like? But I want you to take note of something here. In verse 15, James says, if a brother or sister, right? James is talking specifically about those in the covenantal community of believers or the church. Now, yes, there are commands for us to take care of the poor and the marginalized, but here James is referencing brothers and sisters inside the church, and we actually have a command to do this already. Galatians 6.10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, as Paul writes, let us work for the good of all, especially for those belonging to to the household of faith. See, I want to come back to it again. You can believe and say that that God can and does take care of his children, but Calvary and to everyone who's tuning in, not only do we have a direct command from God to take care of, of our brothers and sisters, but to be used by God. Guys, it is a privilege and a means of glorifying him. But the implications are twofold. First, there is a person in need. And second, there is a person who is able to help with those needs. To the one who is in need, he is blessed and provided for and taken care of by God through the person of abundance. And to the one who has abundance, you are being used as agents of God's mercy and grace and goodness to those in need. You're actually living out Matthew 6. But here's the reality. Most of us do live in abundance. And if you have been blessed with an abundance, God hasn't given you that to hoard and stockpile in your cupboards and your bank account for a rainy day. That's not why you've been blessed with an abundance. Now listen, I'm not saying that we should just be frivolous and irresponsible with what God has given us. In fact, we're also called to be good stewards of the resources that he's blessed us with. But stockpiling it and hoarding it is not the primary reason why you are blessed in this way. Why many of us in Canada are blessed in this way. As one commentator reminds us, you have been blessed by God to live an open-handed life. To show that you are not enslaved to those blessings, but rather are grateful for them. This is what James is getting at here in verses 15 to 17. We are to be a conduit of blessing. A faith without works is like a pipe that's just clogged. And we all know what it's like to have a clogged toilet. It's not fun. It's not fun. So if you have the opportunity and the capacity to bless a brother or sister with their physical needs and you don't, if you know that God wants to use you as an agent of blessing and you don't, All you've done is assented to an intellectual faith. And you're like the man in this text that's covering up his ability with religious jargon and niceties. 
That's it. We cannot be clogged toilets. We can't. This is not who we are in Christ, and this is not a representation of the God we serve. In fact, David Drover next week, he'll unpack more about uh, what it looks like to come alongside those in need when he looks at 1 John 3, but here's what verse 17 says. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love even reside in him? You see, instead of reflecting the servant heart compassion that God has shown you through Christ, you're doing the exact opposite of Matthew 6, verses 19 to 20. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So James is making the comparison quite simply that faith without works is like words of compassion without service. It's incompatible It doesn't work. If it's all up here, it's dead. It's useless. It's a sham. If if you have a living faith, however, you will have works. As another commentator reminds us, a faith which is purely doctrinal and does not result in pious action, that's just a fancy word of saying charity, is a dead sham. It's totally useless for salvation. But this is the danger, Calvary, okay? And everyone tuning online, this is the danger of having a faith that's all head knowledge and devoid of works. You cannot separate them. You just can't. You can't separate faith from works. They go hand in hand. In fact, trying to do so, now listen, trying to separate faith from works, according to James, borders pretty close on the demonic. Check out verse 18. You have faith, and I have works. To which James replies, Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. Not only does he begin describing the evidence of what saving faith looks like, but he now goes on the offensive with a doctrinal and a theological argument. Here it is, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. You believe that God is one, You do well. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You know, a couple of weeks ago at our KCC home group, before we had to shut it down and go online, I asked a question. I asked everyone, who is God? Because we're going through a book called What is the Gospel, right? And the writer of, of this little uh, black book, uh, takes chapter uh, three, two, two, whatever, and asks the question, who is God? Because he wants us to have a proper understanding of who God is before we look at the remaining chapters. And what, what's really great about this home group is that we have people who've come from different backgrounds and stories. We all have a different story about how we came to saving faith and to know God and, and what it looks like with our relationship with Christ But as I went around the room and I asked everyone to describe their understanding of who God was prior prior to coming to saving faith, each one had a very different, different answer. 
At the time in their past, their orthodoxy, or really that's the fancy word for their understanding of God, it was skewed. It was skewed based on a number of factors and experiences, but they really had an improper understanding of who God was. But I tell you this because as much as we pride ourselves on what we know about God and our theology and our doctrines, we we don't have the full revelation of God yet. Now, we do have the full revelation of God's plan of salvation, but we don't have a full revelation of God this side of eternity. But we do have this. We do have the Bible, and I just want to be clear that this is more than enough for us to know him, to grow as believers, to grow in maturity, and to learn about the amazing glories of our king. But consider what James is saying here in verse 19. When he says, you believe that God is one, He's not only calling out the practicalities of of this non-saving faith, but he's also calling into question this guy's theology and this guy's doctrine. You see, verse 19, it's an allusion to something called the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Now, I I really hope I got that word right. If not, I'm going to hear about it on Monday when we debrief over this sermon. So have, uh, have mercy on me. But this is how it goes. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is pure doctrine at its finest. And this would have been at the heart of every Jewish girl and boy as they had grown up studying the Old Testament. But the challenge I'm going to argue for many of us is not that we don't have ample opportunity to to better understanding of who God is and his attributes and his character and, and everything that goes with him. But the difficulty is obedience in the next part. As the Shema goes into verse 5, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, Moses says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. For many of us, including people way back then, the theology only ever stayed up here. It never moved here. And to argue his rationale, James points to the demonic. You see, when it comes to doctrine and theology, don't discount the fact that the demons are fully aware and maybe, maybe they even understand who God is on a deeper level. Not only have they experienced God firsthand, but they know about his will, his nature, his wrath, and that the scriptures are the very word of God and that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, take, for example, the exorcism of the Gerasene demoniac in Mark 5. Just before Jesus was to cast them out, yeah, I said them, not it, they said, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. I mean, come on. That's a pretty clear understanding of who Jesus is. Even the demons know who he is. They also know that salvation is by grace alone, that Christ ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. They know very well that there is a literal heaven and a literal hell waiting for them at some point in the future. They also know they can't be saved and that salvation is something only offered to us. Not only do they know it, but they hate it. And not only do they know it, but they shudder in response to it. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, shudder. And it should be a wake-up call for us. At least the demons, with all their knowledge and all their doctrine and all their theology, at least they have 
an emotional response to this great and terrifying God. And I often wonder, how many of us have the same response? How many of us before God shudder? Or have we been desensitized to our great, beautiful, terrifying, and merciful God? And this is the sad irony of of a faith built on nothing but doctrine and theology alone. The point that James is making here is that even the best understanding of doctrine is no guarantee to saving faith. Because faith without works is dead. And faith built upon doctrine alone is dead. It's completely dead. Here's my third point. Your works justify your faith. Your works justify your faith. I'm going to read verse 21 right down to verse 26 and then spend a few moments talking about it. So verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is, from James' perspective, the the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. You see, he takes two very different people with very different backgrounds as an example of how our works are evidence of saving faith. He takes Abraham and Rahab, and the differences between the two are like night and day. Abraham a man, Rahab a woman, two different cultures, Abraham a Chaldean, Rahab a Canaanite, Abraham the grandfather of the nation of Israel, he was a great leader, she was a common citizen, he had great wealth and she most likely lived in poverty. Abraham had a position of prominence and Rahab a prostitute. Regardless though of the lifestyles or shortcomings of both Abraham and Rahab, because trust me, I don't have time to get into it today, but Abraham certainly had his share of moral failures. Both were equally before God sinners, and both were equally deserving of judgment. But let me remind you, as Adam preached last week, God can and does redeem anyone who comes to him. There's no sinner that comes before God and puts their faith in him that God will reject. Not even Abraham, and most certainly not even Rahab. Because here's the thing, all right, listen. Your past is your past, but your past does not define who you are in Christ. I want us to remember that. Your past may be filled with regret and shame, and you might hear that voice chirping you daily, saying how unworthy you are of God's grace. But let me tell you, for everyone who's tuning in, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Remember, as it says in John 1, he, Jesus, came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to those who did receive him, (laughs) 
He gave them the right to be called children of God. And I have no doubt in my mind that both Abraham and Rahab are and were children of God. But let's not, let's not ignore the fact that James did use Abraham and Rahab as examples, and I believe he did so with very, very good intentions. First, all right, first, despite being on completely opposite ends of the spectrum, both Abraham and Rahab placed their faith in a living God. In other words, they took their understanding and theology and doctrine and responded in trust and then in works, in deeds, in acts, actions, and in service. Second, James uses Abraham and Rahab to remind us that saving faith and service and works are not something reserved for specific people. As I just mentioned, these guys are on the most opposite ends of the social, cultural, and economic spectrums. And so James is making a point here. Saving faith is available to everyone. Everyone. But I believe he uses Abraham and Rahab to remind us that anyone is capable of living out a saving faith. Anyone who has put their faith in Christ and has the spirit of the living God living inside them is more than capable of producing works as evidence of that saving faith. And because of their trust in the Lord, their faith manifested into action. This is why it says in verse 22, their faith was made complete. In other words, their works justified their faith. And there's that word that I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon justification. This is another reason why people like to avoid this particular part of the book of James, because there's that word justification. But when James uses this word justified in verse 24, he's basically saying this, really simple. Abraham and Rahab, what they did was in response to their faith in Yahweh. And their response, uh, sorry, tongue-tied, substantiated their faith. It was proof of their saving faith. It's not that they believe that their righteous works bought them a ticket into heaven. No, but that their works justified their saving faith. Now, I, I give a, a couple of analogies. Uh, one particular, the, the wedding analogy back at the beginning. And I, I want us to come back to that. So after 10 years of marriage, I can look back at all the things I did to prove and to substantiate my vows. If anything, I have this wedding band on my finger that also justifies that I have been serious with my vows. It's by our actions that we prove or justify our faith, the evidence of our faith to others and to God. James said back in verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, I will justify my faith by the things that I do. So where do we go from here? Here we are on Valentine's Day, 2021. We're living this perpetual Groundhog Day. And I think many of us will agree that this last week in St. John's and the entire province has been crazy. It's been all over the shop. In a matter of 36 hours, we've gone from alert level two to Level five, anxiety is up, fear is up, 
uncertainty and it feels like it's just maybe never going to end if we look back to what happened last March. In a lot of ways, our hands are tied. We can't see family. We can't see friends. We can't go to work. But let's not forget, right? Let's not forget this. We've been here before. We've gone through this already. We've learned how to pivot and adapt. And just because we're in lockdown doesn't mean that we become complacent in living out our faith. You know, Jesus said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against his church. And honestly, folks, neither will COVID. We can still pray for each other. We can still make phone calls. We can still do video calls with each other. We can still encourage each other and and lift each other up. We can still show each other and the world that our faith is a living, saving faith. Drop someone a message or send them an email telling you're thinking of them and praying for them. Talk to your neighbor from your deck and if you have a snowblower, go snowblow at the end of someone's driveway. Right now the forecast is saying 15 centimeters on Wednesday, so that's a great opportunity. But just make sure you do so with physical distancing. We can still justify our faith by what we do, even in light of these extraordinary circumstances. Abraham and Rahab did, and now they serve as examples of what it means to have a saving faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, that we could be here to proclaim your word, to preach your word, Father. I pray that the message I spoke was far better than what I preached, that people heard it better than what I preached. I pray that, Lord, we would be transformed by it, that we would be transformed by you, that you would convict us, Lord, to be always looking at our faith, always examining our faith and working out our faith in fear and trembling before you. Lord, you are good. You are a great God. And I'm so thankful, Father, that oh, you know us and we can know you. So, Lord, I give you this day, give you this time for everyone who's tuned in. I pray that you would go before them by your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.